Amen. All right. Uh, Good morning. Uh, Welcome again to Hope Community Church, Lower Town, St. Paul. My name is Paul Stiver, and I'm one of the elders here. I'm on staff with Hope. I do a lot of different stuff, uh, including all those LDI classes Brian mentioned. Uh, We'd love to have you join us for any of the ones we highlighted. And yeah, tons more on the website. So we are in week 10 of 11, I believe. We've only a couple more weeks. We'll be back in the book of Romans for this fall. But right now we're in this sermon series, not just another story, our summer sermon series, where we're looking at, especially New Testament in the Gospels, stories and parables that Jesus tells, where uh, we, we might think, oh, this is what it means, this is what it's about. But then as we chew on it, as we think about it more, we realize this isn't just another story. Jesus isn't just another teacher giving us moral lessons, but he's actually trying to show us something bigger than what we might have expected. So um, I was thinking about uh, waiting rooms recently. This is a picture of a vet waiting room. Uh, We just had to take our dog, Sage, to the vet about a month ago, and I was worried that they were going to have us just wait in the car, but thankfully we got to go in with her. Uh, But this waiting room, this is a vet waiting room. They never look like this. Um, They're always just covered in in dog pee. Like, let's be honest, my dog pees in there every time. Uh, or she like wants to smell other dogs that have peed. Uh, and, uh, but the, she also loves the vet. She loves the waiting room because there's cats. There's always like somebody with a cat in a crate and she's like, let me just get it. Can I please have a cat? Uh, and uh, no, you can't, you're a dog. Um, and that's just not how they work. But the vet waiting room never looks like this. It's always chaos. It's always a nightmare. Um, also, uh, this is, I don't know what this waiting room is. This guy's got like a a homemade cup of coffee, but typically we're like the guy on the phone, right? When we're in the waiting room. Uh, I, my least favorite waiting room is the dentist because I know what comes next is the dentist. Um, but uh, I also, the doctor is bad too because you're at the doctor and you're like in the waiting room and then they bring you into a different room to wait. Um, and you're just waiting now for the doctor to come in. It's like a second waiting room. But uh, yeah, I can't stand waiting rooms and the reason why I bring that up is because um, Jesus is actually going to highlight this in our parable today. Uh, Thinking back to context of last week's sermon, which we'll look at, he's going to talk about what waiting looks like and and something that we get in waiting, something that we can do while we're waiting that actually can change us Uh, because we're terrible at waiting. We're terrible at even waiting in a waiting room, right? We immediately lose heart. We immediately start wondering how this is all going to go. So we're looking at that today. Uh, The story of not giving up is this week's sermon. So we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 18 verses 1 through 8, which is called uh, the parable of the persistent widow. And what we do every week is as we read the passage, we make comments, we see observations, uh, and then we try to get to Jesus and we try to see what this means for our lives. And, and Brian prayed it, but I want to remind us that God, this is God's word. And uh, sometimes when we've been a Christian for a while, uh, we can forget that God's word has the power to change us on the spot and transform our lives, that we actually, like Brian said, can leave here different. And so I don't want to just let this wash over us and say, oh yeah, okay, another sermon, another Sunday, right? But we actually have the chance here for God to work on us and change us. And so uh, let's get into this. It says, and Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, 
even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on the earth? All right, so that's our passage today. As we get into it, I just got three words that are gonna help us understand this. Three words that are gonna gonna help us in the waiting period so that waiting doesn't crater us. It doesn't cause us to retreat, doesn't cause us to lose heart, doesn't cause us to go astray or lead us to despair. So the first one is story, second one, side door, and then third, we're gonna see actually the persistence of God. So let's get into this. First off, story, verse one again. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them they should always pray and not give up. And I just, I gotta highlight this, even though I'll mention it later too. He, what does he want? We see right here, he wants them to always pray and not give up. So you expect him to say, hey guys, always pray and don't give up. Okay, gotcha, I'll do it. No, he doesn't do that, right? This is a story. He tells them a parable. He tells them a story. Parables, again, are, are kind of comparison or thrown alongside. It's something for us to stop and chew on and really think about and ponder. And so that's what we're gonna do today. We're gonna consider this. And so, so he wants us to see that in the context from last week and, and kind of we're moving from Luke 17 to 18, uh, last week, Brian preached on Luke 17, and, and we looked at kind of what it's going to be like, this waiting period. Jesus has come, and now he's, he's going to leave. He's going to be ascend to heaven, and we're going to be in this waiting period where we've, we've lost all, we've left all to follow Jesus, but now we're kind of, is he coming back? When's he coming back? And we're in this tension, or what theologians like to call, they use uh, smaller words for us, thankfully, they call the already and the not yet. So, Christ has already realized the kingdom, it's happening, and he's not come back yet. And so again, our passage from last week had these verses in Luke 17, verse 30. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. And we get one of these shorter verses in the Bible. Remember Lot's wife calling back to an Old Testament story where someone urgently was leaving a dangerous situation and looked back. And here we see Jesus saying, don't look back. That what you need is me and you need me urgently. So don't look back to the things of the world. And he actually then gives us this counterintuitive pattern that says, the way to have life is actually to lose it. That, that, and then Brian looked at last week that it's actually the life of Christ becomes more realized in us as we die to ourselves, as, as he becomes greater and we become less. So that's the context of, of he's now, you're in this waiting period. What does that look like? That's when he wants to tell us the story about prayer and persistence in prayer. So let's get into this story here. He said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. This is, the, uh, this is Luke really giving us like, okay, here's the background of what, what Jesus wanted to tell us in this story. So we see this, this judge doesn't fear God and he doesn't care what people think. So this is not someone that we would expect to be Jewish because that would be actually the first kind of the main commandments, love God, love others. 
So he doesn't seem to care about God or people. In fact, one commentary says, the judge is typical of a local Gentile judge known throughout the Hellenistic world, that just means the Greek world at that time. As a local secular administrative officer, he would be approached by those who could not bring their cases to the high religious court. Being easily accessible and having authority to make quick decisions, he would naturally be besieged by people such as the widow of the story. So she's in a situation, she can't go to the high religious court, so she just goes to a Gentile judge and is asking for justice. So that's the judge. Now let's look at the widow. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. Okay, so we're learning about this widow. She's coming to him, she's, she's asking for justice. And we actually, widows have a, an interesting place in the Bible and we wanna look at that a little bit this morning. So some of the famous widows in the Bible, Tamar of Genesis 38, who seeks to have her lineage prolonged. Ruth, uh, who fits in the big, big in the Christ story. The widow at Zarephath, we actually looked at in this sermon series, who houses the prophet Elijah. We have Anna, the prophetess, who actually sees the baby Jesus as she's a widow who dedicates her life to being at the temple, praying for the coming of the kingdom. And, And in Luke 2, she sees the baby Jesus. We have the widow with the two coins. In Mark and Luke, we get that story about this widow who has very little and yet shows the generosity of her heart. And then lastly, our parable, which is only in Luke, we have the widow who continually seeks justice. We got to look at widows in context a little more, but what we see even from this list is that widows are embodiments of faith. Widows are embodiments of generosity and persistence. Widows in the Bible are often pinpointed as as moral examples, as people we should look to and learn from. And Jesus does that. He tells stories. The Bible does that and tells us stories about these widows. But we have to understand something about the context at that time, and it's still true in many ways today. Widows were extremely vulnerable in that culture, especially in that culture at the time. A couple quotes here. The widow, of course, was a woman whose husband had died. Consequently, biblical and non-biblical legal codes provide for the protection of the rights of the fatherless and the widow. We see a bunch of different places in the Old Testament that that is specifically prescribed by God to care for the fatherless and the widow. The prophets, so again, the prophets come in in the storyline and they have, the law's already been established and the people of Israel are meant to live under the law, but they don't do that. They're in fact really bad at it. So the prophets come in as bringers of messages from God and say, hey, live this way. This is who God is. You're supposed to look like this. And so the prophets come in, they're particularly concerned with the injustice done to the fatherless and the widow. And actually it's declared, God declares that he would be a father to the fatherless and provide justice for the widow. And actually then in the New Testament, in the letter of James, uh, religious character, actually ethical obedience is measured by how one cares for the fatherless and the widow. Why is that? Because God's saying in the Old Testament and the New, care for those on the margins looks like me. I am the father to the fatherless. I am, God says, the one who provides justice for the widow. So our actions actually reflect how we know God and what we say he's like. Another quote, in an age when social services were almost exclusively dependent on human goodwill, widows, orphans, and the sick and needy were exposed to a precarious social existence. In Israel, a woman's link to the outside community depended largely on a male family member. 
a father in the case of a daughter, a husband in the case of a wife, a son in the case of a widow. The widow of verse three has no male to plead her case, leaving her especially defenseless and vulnerable. This is a uh, certainly a different culture than what we expect in our Western sensibilities, right? Sometimes we see a traditional culture like this and, and one in the past, and we maybe lean toward cultural snobbery or, or uh, chronological snobbery, right? Where we read history and we say, we would know better. We know better than them. But this was the culture at that time. And so women and widows were especially dependent, and therefore, when they lost their husband, they were more defenseless and vulnerable, which is why, for example, we see God establish protections for them in the covenant community. So she is especially defenseless and vulnerable, and what we actually see in our passage is all she has, the only thing she actually has is desperation. All she has is desperation, and and so she uses that desperation again to call upon this judge. Again, it says, and there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. So she persists, she kept coming to him. She takes the initiative because of her desperation. She is unrelenting. Why does she persist? This is a sidebar that I contend. I think she understood that God promised to bring justice to the widow. Even though she's going to a secular person, a secular judge, she's saying God is the judge of all. And he's promised to give justice. So I think in hope, I think in faith, she persists at pursuing even the secular judge because she knows what God has promised. He's promised justice. And so the judge eventually does grant justice, right? But why? Not, he's never portrayed as a good guy. He's never, it's actually, he does it for selfish reasons. It says here another quote, the resolution of the judge has nothing to do with moral reform. He has no more fear of God or respect for people than he ever had. He's motivated solely by practicality, as was the man tucked in bed with his family, a different uh, prayer story that we looked at in this series. The widow's incessant pleas interrupt his life and exhaust him, tax his patience, and bruise his reputation. Her effect on him is registered in a punishing metaphor. Literally, she is beating me black and blue and will be the end of me. This idea of beating me black and blue was, was a kind of the concept of she's bringing shame on me. And in an honor-shame culture like that was, that's like the greatest thing, to be shamed would be the worst thing to flee. So he makes this move. He doesn't want his reputation to be as it was, bruised. And it made me think of uh, when we take our son to uh, Aldi. Because at Aldi, uh, so if you guys don't know Chase, Chase loves bananas. He's, our, he's almost two years old now, or 20 months and his favorite food is bananas. Oftentimes in the morning, oh, is that a word, oftentimes? In the morning when I get him out of bed, he won't say dada, he'll say nana. And he doesn't mean grandma, he means I want to eat a banana. Uh, so he just loves bananas. And when we go to the store, you got him right in the car right there. Guess what we pass right away when you go into Aldi? Bananas. And you know what he wants then? A banana. So here's our experience. We pull into Aldi, he's in the cart, and he see, we learn to give him a snack so that he's not saying banana. But what it's normally like is he'll say, nana, 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 my nana, my nana, my nana, 
banana, banana. He actually does finally get to the actual banana at some point. Over and over and over, he's persisting. Now, we're in public, right? People are saying, are they going to meet their child's needs? We're being shamed by our own son. Our reputation bruised in the sight of these others, unless they're other parents. They're like, well, yeah, I know. Don't even, I'm not even, I couldn't possibly judge you. My kid's worse, Um, right? This is what is happening in this parable. But people in the store might be asking, are they going to meet their child's needs? He caves in because she was bruising his reputation. We give Chase snacks so that he doesn't bruise ours, right? In the store, uh, in that sense, right? But, but that's where we got to get into. Why does Jesus tell this story? What is the lesson? Is there supposed to be a lesson? And so let's go again back to Luke 18.1. Okay, Luke makes it very clear. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. All right, the sermon's title is The Story of Not Giving Up. But is this simply a moral lesson? We just got to persist in prayer. We got to be like the widow. Or is there more to it? Because if we think that way, if we just look at it and say, I got to persist in prayer, we end up looking to ourselves for, for strength to persist in prayer. That's my contention. We, we're all used to kind of these motivational posters, right? Persistence. And this one says, uh, you got to kiss a lot of frogs until you find your prince. And uh, for those of us that maybe have been on the dating scene, uh, kind of, yeah, maybe I resonate a little bit. Uh, just all right. I wasn't sure if I was going to say that one or not, but here we are. Uh, right? But we get the idea of motivational poster, right? Again, you just persist, 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 persist in prayer. But again, like I mentioned before, how is this not just another story? Because Jesus tells a story. And he says, I want you to know, I want you to know that you should persist in prayer and not give up. But instead of saying, persist in prayer and don't give up, he tells a story. And one way we could think about it is he comes in with a story. Story always hits us in a different way. Story comes in the side door and hits us in the heart. Will, to say, persistent prayer, don't give up, that's appealing to our will. Will always comes in the front door. And there's a reason I think he tells the story. In fact, at our house, uh, we live on a corner, uh, typically when something's at the front door, it's not a good sign. It's always bad news. It's like we got a letter that we don't want, or someone, there's some problem. People know when you come to our house, you come in the side door. I think Jesus tells a story because he wants us to understand. I want you to, I'm going to come in the side door at you because here's the deal. When we appeal to our will for change, it might stick for a little while, but the will appeal is always try harder, do better, be a better Christian. You should be praying more. What's wrong with you? Set some boundaries on your phone. Get up early in the morning. Get, look to yourself and really dial up that inner strength to be a better Christian. But story. Story comes in the side door. Story comes in and says, here's who got us. Isn't he amazing? And that appeals to our heart. That causes us to want to respond. That causes us to worship and praise. So how is this not just another story? It's the fact that Jesus comes in the side door. He uses the side door so we don't look to the solution for our prayerlessness to our own strength. And say, I just got to try harder to be a better Christian. 
He wants us to see a bigger picture of who God is, that we can lose ourselves in light of who God is, and that's actually going to evoke in us a prayerful response, a worshipful response. So what does Jesus do? He tells us a story. Again, in verse six, it says, and the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. Okay, so we had that unjust judge and he, he caves to the persistent widow's cries. And now Jesus is gonna do something. He's gonna do a lesser to greater. And in fact, the judge was kind of a villain. He's gonna compare God to this almost villainous character. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. So the lesser to greater is we've got this widow. She's desperate. All she has is desperation. She continually pursues this judge for justice and he grants it. That's the lesser. The greater is for his disciples, for us, for those reading this parable. We are spiritually desperate. We are in need in this waiting period. We're desperate. And so we then persist in calling out to God. And God is pictured as a judge who is not reluctant but happy to bring justice, who will do it quickly, who hears the cries. Look at what it says in verse 7. Of his chosen ones. Oftentimes when we have a waiting period on a prayer request, our theology, the way we think about God starts to go in wayward directions. God, you're not good. You don't care about me. You don't know what you're doing. Let me seize control. I'll figure this out. But when Jesus tells us a story like this, and we ask the question, verse seven says, chosen ones. We ask the question, will God meet his child's needs? People in the store wondering if, if we will give Chase a banana, if we will meet our child's needs. Jesus is saying, will God meet his children's needs? Absolutely. Because his reputation is at stake. So he listens to the cries of his chosen ones. And Jesus uses this story to confront the ways our theology might go bad in waiting periods. And he does it so that instead of just beating us over the head with will and saying, do this, he comes in the side door so that we get a bigger picture of who God is and so that our hearts are impacted to understand who God is. He wants us to have a bigger view of God, right? Aslan said, Lucy, you're bigger. That is because you are older, not because you are. I am not, but every year you grow, you'll find me bigger. When we have to persist in prayer, God becomes bigger. But that's the question, and Jesus closes with that in verse eight. However, when the Son of Man comes, when he returns, this is his title for himself, will he find faith on the earth? You know, often when we don't have prayer requests seemingly answered by God, we say, something's wrong with you. And what Jesus says is, no, no, no. God's always faithful. He knows what he's doing. He cares for his chosen ones. Are you faithful? Will we be found faithful? So as we look at this passage, we've got to consider some practical implications about prayer. We learn a lot from this. Jesus comes in that side door. 
And yet we're terrible at waiting. And again, like I've said, we, we crumble. We often are, are really have a hard time when God causes us to wait or we think he's not answering a prayer, that we, he's not doing things the way we expect. And so I want to look at three things that can give us unshakable faith in the face of waiting. And that actually will give us a deeper and richer relationship with God. So first, the pattern of the Lord's Prayer. Then I want to look at unanswered prayer. And then lastly, the persistence of God. First, the pattern of the Lord's Prayer. Jesus does actually teach the disciples how to pray. This is in Luke chapter 11. It says, one day when Jesus was praying in a certain place, when, when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught the disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, and we all know this, especially I, I grew up Catholic, right? They are Father. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. And what we've got to see is the pattern of the Lord's Prayer, the order of these requests, the very first thing. And this was world-changing at the time. The word father is referred to in, in the Old Testament maybe a couple times. This idea of God as a father is not really there. And Jesus, when he teaches his disciples to pray, he says, you're calling out to your father. And he's a good father. But look at then what comes next. Two things. Hallowed be your name. Would people see you for who you are as holy, as other, as unique, as God? And secondly, would your kingdom come? God, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Would you reign in the hearts of people in this world? That's the second and third thing. And only then does, he, does it say, give us each day our daily bread. Only after those things does it say, meet our needs, Lord. Now, of course, God's concerned with our needs, but look at the posture of this. It doesn't say, Father, give us each day our daily bread. It says, Father, would people see you for who you are? Would your kingdom come in my life, in this world? And God, also, would you meet my needs? Will you care for me? But how often are our prayers me-centric? How often are we saying, my kingdom come? God, meet my needs. C.S. Lewis says of this prayer and of this idea, Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. So often we're focused on our kingdoms and not on what God's doing. Nancy Guthrie touches on this. She says, the Westminster Shorter Catechism for Young Children asks the question, what is prayer? The answer, prayer is asking God for things which he has promised to give. Prayer is asking God for things which he has promised to give. Now, certainly prayer is more than that. We can't ask God for things. He's a good father. He loves to give good, give good gifts to his children. But it is also asking him for that which he's promised to give. She asks the question, are we praying for things God has promised to give, like his presence with us, his word guiding us, his power working in us, his purpose accomplished through us? Or are we limited to praying for only what he has not promised to give? Right? Are we so focused on our kingdom that we're missing what God's desirous for? For example, God has not promised to give us perfect health. That's nowhere in the Bible. God has not promised to give us financial security. 
much as we wish he did. <laughs> uh, I'm just saying, it'd be nice, right? Uh, and he hasn't promised that. God has not promised to give us the relationship we desire. God has not promised to give us a life of comfort without suffering. And in fact, in John 16, Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. If anything, he promises that we'll have trouble. That we will suffer. That we will have to endure waiting periods that will feel painful. But what does he promise? He promises, as she says, to give us his presence, his word, his power, his purpose, his community of believers his forgiveness, his adoption. He brings us into his family. He becomes our father. He gives us his spirit. So we get so stuck trying to build our own little Lego kingdoms, right? We just construct my kingdom. Do I have all the pieces? I hope so, because Lego pieces are expensive, guys. Uh, But the Lord's Prayer reframes that. It says, your kingdom come. And that gives us unshakable power. When we frame our prayer life that way because we're focused not on building our kingdom but on seeing God's kingdom realized. We're not just asking God for good gifts. When we pray, we just want more of God. That we look spiritually desperate that we want you, God, to show up. We want to experience who you are. And yeah, we have things we desire but we desire you most. So that's the first thing. The second thing we got to say that will actually give us, I hope, unshakable faith in prayers. What about my unanswered persistent prayers? You might be looking at this and saying, okay, but I've got some prayers. I've been praying my whole life. What, and it seems like God hasn't met me in those. What about that? And one thing we've got to understand that prayer is spiritual warfare. Prayer is stepping into the ring, the octagon, right? <laughs> Getting into the cage, fighting for our faith. Even in the passage, she's beset with opposition. She has to continually persist, the widow does. There's a need for hope and trust, even in the midst of delayed and unexpected answers. And I want to look at a quote from a woman named Vanitha Reisner. This is a woman who uh, has, was actually has polio as the result of a doctor's mistake. Uh, in another instance, a lost a child in tragic, tragedy as a result of a different doctor's mistake went through a divorce she didn't want because her husband had an affair. This woman has experienced great suffering, great tragedy, great evil. And we gotta hear what she says about prayer. Says, I don't like living with scarcity. I don't like having just enough to meet my needs. I don't like being dependent. It makes me feel vulnerable. That's because deep down, I'd rather depend on myself than on God. Though I wanna serve him with my whole heart, trusting him in the dark can be frightening. It's far easier when the future looks bright. I'd rather praise God for his abundant provision, big things, than daily depend on him to meet my basic needs. And listen to what she says. Thankfully, he doesn't give me what I want or would choose on my own. He has something more magnificent in mind. He knows my security and confidence must be rooted in him, not in the good things he gives, even though his gifts may be wonderful blessings. Certainly he gives good gifts. They cannot be my source of hope. She continues. It's wise to save money so we have enough to retire. 
or facing retirement with little savings may force us to depend on God in ways that a large bank account never would. It's wonderful to have great health and boundless energy, but being ill and relying on others for assistance may drive us to our knees quicker and longer each day. It's a joy to have a house full of loving, obedient children, but crying out to God because of infertility or wayward kids may draw us into a deeper relationship with him. And she hits on some heavy things there. But she wants us to see the thing that she's learned, the spiritual power she's tapped into in her suffering, she wants to give away to us, which is that God desires, first and foremost, to be our only source of hope. He wants us to know him. He's, his heart is always to draw sinners to himself. He wants to show us that he's our greatest need. He wants to show us that we're spiritually desperate, not just for things in this world, but for him. She quotes Charles Spurgeon in this article later, and, and Charles Spurgeon's an old pastor, and he says, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. The suffering, the trial, the challenge is the wave that she says, or that he says, throws me against Christ. He finds that as blessing. Another way to think about this concept, Tim Keller says, God will only give you what you would have asked for if he knew everything he knows. God would only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. When we're waiting, when we're in those waiting periods, I don't know if God's meeting this need. I don't know if I can trust him. We're reminded of this, that God, spoiler alert, is God. He knows what he's doing. He's seen all the scenarios. And he knows that what we would ask for if we knew everything he knows is that he would be our only source of hope, that we would find life in him where life is found. So we learn from this, his timing is always right, his answer is always best. This bigger picture of God confronts our warped theology and this is why Jesus tells us this story. He wants us to see who God is. So lastly, as we close, let's look at the persistence of God. This is the third thing we need for an unshakable faith and an unshakable prayer life is to see that this parable actually isn't necessarily about us. We've got to turn up to Jesus, right? This is what we're going to do in the seminar. We've got to see the persistence of God. And you guys understand the whole storyline of the Bible from the first page is of God's persistence to bring sinners into relationship with himself. He's relentless at it. He shows throughout the whole Bible his one-way love, his initiative-taking mercy, and when we get to the New Testament, one of the ways we can read the Bible is seeing the New Testament, especially what happens in Christ's life, death, and work on the cross as culmination, as the climax of the story, the apex, what's the mountaintop of what's happening. And we see the persistence of God in the Garden of Gethsemane. For context, Jesus is going to go to the cross. He knows it. But he's out in the garden and he's praying. It says in verse 41, this is in uh, Luke he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. We see in Matthew's gospel, he prays this prayer again. Verse 45, when he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. 
We learn a lot about the persistence of God in this prayer. Jesus prays, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. What is that cup? Often in the Bible, it's pictured as the cup of God's wrath against sin, his justice at play. And Jesus says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And we gotta see this. If we wanna understand the persistence of God in his mercy, the cup of wrath belongs to Christ. God gives the cup of wrath to Christ and in his justice, Christ drinks it to the dregs. We have to understand this. We wanna understand the persistence of God. On the cross, God's justice and mercy meet. Christ absorbs the justice. He absorbs the wrath. He pays the penalty for sin that we deserve so that he can unleash God's mercy. Jesus is met with waiting. Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. In the garden, Jesus lives out, your kingdom come, your will be done. Here he is, he's the king, he's the kingdom. And he prays and says, not my will, but yours be done. And because he does, and because of that, he goes to the cross, God now can unleash his mercy on us. He completes the story that God's persistent will throughout the Bible was to have mercy on sinners, but he also had to deal with his justice. He had to punish sin. And he does it on the cross so that now we can see God's persistence is to us. He brings us to himself through the side door of his mercy. When we understand that, we have unshakable faith. This changes our prayer life. So we need a bigger picture of God's mercy. In the book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland says this. That God is rich in mercy means that your regions of deepest shame and regret are not hotels through which divine mercy passes, but homes in which divine mercy abides. It means the things about you that make you cringe the most make him hug the hardest. It means his mercy is not calculating and cautious like ours. It is unrestrained, flood-like, sweeping, magnanimous. It means our haunting shame is not a problem for him, but the very thing he loves most to work with, he continues. It means our sins do not cause his love to take a hit. Our prayerlessness, our constantly asking God for things instead of him, doesn't cause his love to take a hit. Our sins cause his love to surge forward all the more. It means on that day when we stand before him quietly, unhurriedly, we will weep with relief, shocked at how impoverished a view of his mercy-rich heart we have. This is the just judge who listens to the cries of his chosen ones. This is the bigger picture of God that he wants us to see. This is why Jesus comes in the side door with story. 
He wants us to see the reckless love of God, that he's done everything it takes to bring us to himself, that he persists in seeking us. And then our prayer life just looks like seeking the one who sought us already. This is the persistence of God. The Jesus Storybook Bible, Sally Lloyd-Jones says it this way, God loves us. Nothing can ever, no, not ever, separate us from the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love of God he showed us in Jesus. We get to pray to the one who persists in seeking us and showing mercy to us. That's who God is. And we do that We pray to him in this waiting period until the day that we don't pray anymore because we're seeing him face to face and we're just talking. So as we close, just two things. If you have yet to trust Christ or maybe particularly because you have, Do you see the persistent mercy of God, how he endures with you? Not begrudgingly, but excitedly, loves to pursue you? Do you see that bigger picture of God? And secondly, let's stop building Lego kingdoms and asking God to give us more pieces. And let's pray, God, first your kingdom come. Your will be done. I trust because you've met my greatest need in Christ. I trust you to meet my other needs. You're a good father who cares for me. So let's aim at heaven and get earth thrown in. Right now we get to move to a time of communion where we get to each week be reminded of the pursuing and persistent mercy of God. The way for representing Christ body broken for us to show us God's mercy, the juice representing Christ's blood shed for us to show us again, God has brought us into his family. We are his. And therefore, your kingdom come, Lord. Your will be done. Here at Hope, we practice what we call an open communion. You don't have to be a member of this church or any church. All we'd ask is that you're a follower of Christ, that you're someone who says, yes, I put my faith in God. He has become my source of hope. I've believed in Jesus for forgiveness, for mercy, and for all the blessings of salvation. I'm gonna pray and we'll continue with a couple songs. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come in our hearts right now. Your will be done. God, we thank you that your heart persists in showing mercy to us Mercy, things that we don't deserve, you give. Because Christ took what we deserve on the cross. God, we thank you for that story. We thank you for that reality. And we pray that you would transform us right now on the spot to desire you more and your things less. That you would become more, we would become less, that Jesus would be realized more in our lives. So God, your kingdom come and also meet our needs. But remind us afresh that our greatest need is always you. Help our hearts to worship you now as we take communion and and pray and sing. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.